Welcome to this special Wednesday morning chapel. I want to welcome students, faculty, staff, community guests. We're grateful that you're here at Goshen College. Let us pray together. God in heaven, thank you for the rain. Thank you for the refreshing, crisp, cool air that has set in. Thank you for these days together. Continue to be with us this morning and in the days yet to come. Amen. Well, today we are pleased to have Brian McLaren with us. This is the first of a numerous uh, activities that Brian will be involved in here at Goshen College um, over today and tomorrow before he flies off and away Friday back to the east. Brian is a pastor and author and innovative Christian thinker. He has been listed by Time Magazine as one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. In the past decade, Brian has written eight books and has co-authored three others, including The Secret Message of Jesus, A Generous Orthodoxy, The Church on the Other Side, Finding Faith. He has assisted in the development of several new church plants and is the founding pastor of Cedar Ridge Community Church near Baltimore, where he continued to pastor until this year. Brian has also been active in networking and mentoring church planters and pastors since the mid-1980s and as a leader in the emergent church movement. He now serves as chair of the board of directors for Sojourners Call to Renewal in Washington, D.C. Brian graduated from the University of Maryland with bachelor's and master's degrees in English and later received an honorary doctor of divinity degree from Cary Theological Seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia. He has also appeared on Larry King Live Religion and Ethics and Newsweek, and Nightline, and is a popular conference speaker and guest lecturer at seminaries, colleges, churches, and denominational uh, gatherings, both nationally and internationally. He is, his public speaking covers a range of topics, including postmodernism, biblical studies, evangelism, apologetics, leadership, global mission, church growth, church planting, art and music, pastoral survival and burnout, interreligious dialogue, ecology, and social justice. Brian is a husband, father, and spouse of a pastor for now. He and Grace have been married for over 25 years and have four grown young adult children, but they are now living life in the empty nest as their youngest is a first-year college student. Today and tomorrow, Brian will be on our campus engaging in various classes with students and faculty and staff, pastors and other guests on a variety of faith-related related topics. Tonight, at Campus Worship Night for Students at 9 p.m. in Newcomer Center 19, Brian will engage in dialogue with students on a variety of faith questions that you may have. In particular, if anything is spurred on by uh, today's chapel presentation. Today's chapel is titled, The Seven Jesuses I Have Known. Let's give a warm welcome to Brian McLaren. Uh, I... Uh 
I especially am glad, I know we have a lot of Mennonites here, and uh, some of you know that some of my books are a little bit controversial. I, uh, I was in Norway recently, and uh, I, I'm like a typical American. I didn't know a lot about Norway's geography, and uh, I, I'd, I'd heard of Oslo, where I was. I didn't know the second biggest city is called Stravanger, and I was invited to Stravanger to speak, and it, it doesn't take much in Stravanger to, uh, to make you a celebrity, so the local newspaper uh, wanted to interview me as a, you know, I felt like Michael Jackson or something. No, I didn't. I felt like, anyhow, somebody important. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I sit down with this journalist, and he really looked nervous. And he said, uh, the reason I'm nervous is I spent the whole evening last night reading the internet about you. He said, you know, you have a lot of people who hate you. <laughs> uh, and, and he showed me this big, thick stack of, uh, of email or of uh, website pages with all kinds of things. So this is why I like being with Mennonites. E even if you disagree with me, you won't kill me. <laughs> so so I, I breathe a sigh of relief. I, I, I don't always feel that way uh, in other places. Uh, I, I grew up, as was said, in an evangelical church. And so uh, the first Jesus that I got to know was uh, the evangelical Jesus. This is the Jesus who saves us by dying. Uh, I frequently heard it said, even though this is never said in the Bible, I frequently heard it said growing up, Jesus was born to die. And the center of the entire gospel for me as an evangelical was the cross. And uh, the cross was understood primarily in legal categories, that Jesus, by dying, was paying for my legal guilt. He was accepting my punishment. And uh, it didn't take me long as a boy before I became aware of my own sin. And so it was very precious to me that Jesus had taken all of the punishment and guilt of my sin on himself. I just felt the importance of this yesterday, uh, two days ago, uh, because a friend of mine, uh, uh, this husband and wife are friends of my wife and I, and recently the wife had an affair, and uh, she confessed to her husband and uh, a lot of pain, but he has forgiven her, but she's still really struggling, and so we talked on, on Monday. And she said to me, when my husband forgave me, it almost made it worse. There was part of me that imagined he's going to kick me out of the house and I'll be a homeless person and I deserve it because he's such a good man and I betrayed him. She said, I just feel that I shouldn't be able to get away with this and I need to be punished. And of course, at that moment, I thought about the evangelical image of Jesus that tells us, yes, Sin is wrong. Nobody should be able to get away with it. But instead of us being punished, God accepted the punishment into his own heart through Jesus. And that is the uh, first image of Jesus that, uh, that I was taught and introduced to in my teenage years. Uh, later in my teenage years, I, I met uh, a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics. And there I met a second Jesus, the Pentecostal Jesus, 
In many ways, if the evangelical Jesus saves by dying on the cross, the Pentecostal Jesus saves by sending the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the idea that the risen Christ has sent his spirit and his spirit is active in our own lives and is active in our world, this is a very exciting idea for me. Because once your sins are forgiven, what then? And I was eager to, to explore the ways that Jesus is active and living and doing things in the world today. And so uh, the picture of Jesus healing someone becomes a, a symbol to me of the, of the Pentecostal Jesus, who by the Holy Spirit is still present, doing the kinds of things Jesus did uh, when he walked this earth. Uh, so if the, the Pentecostal Jesus saves us by giving us power to live and power to serve, and power to experience God. When I was in graduate school, I, uh, I did my graduate thesis on a novelist named Walker Percy. He was uh, uh, from Louisiana, or he, was, he lived in Louisiana, from Mississippi, uh, and one of the really important authors of the 20th century. If any of you, are, uh, all you college students, are looking for an English paper to write, Walker Percy would be a good guy to research. He grew up as an agnostic. Uh, His parents uh, both committed suicide. Uh, That that doesn't give you a great, uh, you know, emotional preparation for the rest of your life. Uh, Both committed suicide when he was a teenager. He was raised by his uncle, who is a somewhat eccentric uh, Southern poet and a friend of William Faulkner, a homosexual. They, he and Faulkner used to get drunk together all the time. So Percy had an interesting life from his parents to then being raised by his uncle in this very literary setting. Uh, eventually became, uh, went from being an atheist and agnostic to then being a theist and finally a Christian. I think in some ways Walker Percy is, is our American C.S. Lewis. Uh, and became a Roman Catholic Christian. And so as I did my research on Percy, I learned a lot about Catholicism I hadn't known. And so after having met the evangelical Jesus and the Pentecostal Jesus, I started to learn about the Catholic Jesus. If the evangelical Jesus saves by dying on the cross and the Pentecostal Jesus adds a new dimension of salvation by sending the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, for Roman Catholics, Now, this is complex, and there would be many ways to say it, but at the heart, you could say, Jesus saves by being raised from the dead. Because human beings are held captive by the fear of death, and they're held captive by all the systems of of oppression that use fear, and all fear can be traced back to the fear of death. By raising Jesus from the dead, all of those oppressive systems are neutralized and we are liberated from those oppressive systems and we're liberated from the fear of death. In this way, Christ is portrayed in Catholic theology as Christus Victor, as the one, as the victorious Christ and his victory over death means liberty for all of humanity. John Milton, who wasn't a Catholic, but John Milton, uh, the great English poet, uh, he, uh, he pictured this in Paradise Lost in this way. Death in the Middle Ages became personified as a monster that wants to swallow up everybody. And uh, so in, in Paradise Lost, 
uh, Milton Pictures, death swallowing Jesus. But Jesus is too big and gets caught in death's throat, so death chokes to death. <laughs> and in this way, Jesus slays death and is the victor who can liberate humanity. And then the risen Christ for Catholics is present to us and experienced by us through the Eucharist, which is why the Eucharist, one of the reasons the Eucharist is so central. So I felt like I was getting to know a, a third Jesus or a third image of Jesus uh, through my study of, uh, uh, of the Catholic understanding of Jesus. Uh, along the way, I had really known nothing about Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, you know, the church began uh, in a somewhat uh, grassroots way, but eventually was centralized, and uh, it was centralized with two uh, kind of headquarters, one in Constantinople and one in Rome. And these coexisted for quite a while, but uh, right around 1000 AD, uh, there was a split. The split had been happening gradually, maybe like the split in the trunk of a tree. And uh, by about 1050, it had really split into two streams, and each of them claims to go all the way back. Each of them claims to be the trunk, and the other one broke off. But one is Catholicism, and the other is Eastern Orthodoxy. But I knew almost nothing about Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, and then some years uh, ago, uh, one of, after I'd become a pastor, one of my uh, staff members gave me a book on prayer. Now, I love, to, I love to read Christian books. Now, I even write some, so I hope other people love to read them too. But, but uh, I, I got this sort of sick feeling after a while that every time I picked up a Christian book, about a paragraph or two in, I knew exactly what it was going to say. You know, I could say, and, and the purpose of reading the book was to see if I had guessed it correctly. Kind of like a B-grade movie where you think, oh, this is one of those movies where X, Y, and Z happens, and sure enough, you're, you're right. And I especially had ambivalence in reading books about prayer because I love to pray and I think prayer is very important, but uh, a lot of times when I read books on prayer, they just make me feel guilty. You know, it's always... You don't pray enough or you don't pray the right way. And any time you quantify things, I think you, you run the risk of destroying them. Uh, and so I would read this book on prayer and instead of making me want to pray, here's what would happen. I would begin to pray, Father in heaven, oh, I haven't been praying enough lately. I just read that book on prayer. Oh gosh, I'm really sorry I haven't prayed enough. Why don't I pray more? I'm a terrible person. And pretty soon I'm not even thinking about prayer, I'm thinking about myself. So there, I have this love-hate relationship with books on prayer. But uh, a staff member of mine gave me a book by a Greek Orthodox bishop. His name was Anthony Bloom. The book was called Beginning to Pray. And I remember in the second paragraph of the book, I thought, something's wrong here. I have no idea where he's going. Uh, I have no idea what he's talking about. And what really surprised me is he started a book on prayer by describing the experience of feeling abandoned by God. It was as if he was saying, the way to learn how to pray is to begin with the experience of feeling that God doesn't exist or is so far away from you. And I thought, nobody's ever written a book on prayer like this before. 
And this intrigued me with the Eastern Orthodox approach. And I, as I read that book, I never knew what the next page was going to say. I felt I was getting a very different understanding of Jesus than I had learned from evangelical, Catholic, and Pentecostal uh, approaches to Christianity, which all grew from the other uh, main branch off the Christian trunk, if you will. But here's what I came to understand. If the evangelical Jesus saves by dying on the cross, and if the uh, uh, Pentecostal Jesus saves by being present through the Holy Spirit, and if the Catholic Jesus saves by being victorious over death, in a certain sense, the Eastern Orthodox Jesus saves by being born, saves through the incarnation. Now, one of the most common icons in the Eastern Orthodox tradition uh, is a picture of Mary and Jesus. And most of these icons, you look at them and you think, boy, they weren't very good artists back then. This looks a little bit like sophomore in high school art, you know. But I came to understand, no, these are not supposed to be graphically representative. Icons work differently. They're symbolic. And to, uh, and to there, there's like a literacy for reading icons. And, and there's a lot we could say about this. But what I want to point out is what's very important in this iconography is the relationship between Mary and Jesus. And you'll notice the baby Jesus doesn't look like a baby. He looks like a little man. That's not a mistake. Because what's being pictured here is the dynamic relationship between Mary, who in Eastern Orthodoxy is called Theotokos, or the God-bearer. And Jesus as the baby here is also Jesus as the young man, is also Jesus as the adult. And so what is being portrayed here is this, and this is really quite amazing in Eastern Orthodox theology. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus, in being born into humanity through Mary's womb, represents God joining humanity. God entering humanity. God coming into humanity. Not only humanity, but also creation, matter, energy, history, culture. God is entering into our world, never to abandon it. Uh, so, in Eastern Orthodox theology, the entry of God into our world, it's a, this is a terribly simplistic con comparison, but you know all of those movies you've seen where there's a superhero, you know, Superman, Spider-Man, or whatever. There's a really bad situation, and uh, Spider-Man shows up. And you don't know what's going to happen, but you know it's going to be okay because the good guy's on the scene. Well, there's a sense that if Jesus, if, if God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the Son, has entered the world, everything's going to be okay. In fact, uh, to contrast with my evangelical upbringing, as an evangelical, I often heard this analogy. Imagine you have a glass of pure water, and we take a drop of poison and we put it into the water. Uh, now, that one drop of poison means if you drink the glass of water, you will die. And they said that pure water could be like your life, but if there's one drop of sin in your life, then you're in trouble and you need Jesus to, uh, to get rid of it for you. Well, the Eastern Orthodox almost reversed that 180 degrees. 
They say, imagine you have a glass of festering, smelly, disgusting poison. And you take one drop of God and drop that into the glass. If God enters, the power and vitality and health and goodness of God is so great that now the poison will be neutralized and the water will be made pure. So that's why for the Eastern Orthodox, Christmas is the center of, of salvation because it means God has entered our world and now we can be assured that everything will be okay. The way one of the church fathers said it is whatever is assumed is redeemed. And by God assuming our humanity and entering it, it will be redeemed. So I had uh, four different pictures of Jesus and uh, I was very, very prejudiced against the fifth one because I'd grown up evangelical. In fact, I grew up in a fundamentalist home and the worst enemies of fundamentalists are liberal Protestants. And uh, uh, I remember my first extended conversation about theology with a liberal Protestant. God tricked me into this, I think, because I love to fish. Now, I know a lot of you don't understand why anybody would like to fish. Uh, my wife feels this way. Uh, she says, Brian, there's a fine line between fishing and standing on the beach holding a stick looking like an idiot. But anyway, <laughs> uh, for some reason I enjoy it. And one day I was fishing by a river and uh, a guy comes up and starts fishing with me and we start talking. And he was a seminary student at Harvard Divinity School, which meant he was a liberal. And, uh, but he liked fishing, so this created a great bond and a great fear, you know, so, so we, and the fish were biting that day, so it meant we had a long conversation, because one of the rules of fishing is you never leave when the fish are biting. But I learned from him a completely different understanding. Uh, it turned out he understood my understanding of Jesus, but I didn't understand his. And he said, no, Brian, he said, what you evangelicals do is you say Jesus was born and then you fast forward through his whole life to his death. In fact, you know, the, the creeds do this. I believe in God. I believe in uh, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's son, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate. And the entire life of Jesus gets missed and minimized. And the teaching of Jesus... And so as a liberal Protestant, he said, we take seriously the teaching of Jesus. We don't think that that's just filler. But we think that the world is suffering under ignorance and a lack of enlightenment that could come from the teaching of Jesus. And so for liberal Protestants, what Jesus says becomes knowledge and insight and wisdom that God brings into the world that can help the world be rescued. And that was a way of understanding uh, Jesus that I, I had always had, uh, it always had been minimized for me. But I looked around the world and I thought, you know, the teaching of Jesus really is liberating for this world. And so the, I got a new appreciation for the liberal Protestant Jesus in spite of my prejudice. Now, I had... Um, my first exposure to Mennonites happened by accident. Uh, I was in high school, I was a musician, uh, I, and I played in our school's marching band, 
and we did one of those school exchanges with a school in Ohio, and I got, ended up staying at the house of a Mennonite family. And um, uh, this was, uh, I don't know if this would still be the case now, I'm pretty old, but uh, uh, back when I was growing up, these were Mennonites who, um, they, they were called the Black Bumper Mennonites, and you know, th there was a, a lot of, uh, concern about anything that would appear ostentatious. And there was some acceptance of modern conveniences, but uh, a good bit of anxiety about what uncle so-and-so and aunt so-and-so might think about it. But I went to church with these folks on Sunday, and I just realized these people love Jesus. And they, in some ways, they had a, a perspective on Jesus that I had never understood before. It was years later that I would explore it more deeply. But as those of you who are from an Anabaptist tradition know, uh, not like, like the liberal Protestants, Anabaptists take the teachings of Jesus very seriously. But they would add another dimension to it. They would say, but it's not just the teachings of Jesus. It's the teachings of Jesus lived by a community, lived and demonstrated by a community that tries to put into practice the teachings of Jesus, not just as an institution, but as an actual community of people. And that community in the world, it, it shines the light of, the, of Christ to the world. And this has a saving influence, not only on the people in the community, but on the world. My goodness, just in this last week, uh, you know, you think about all the billions and billions of dollars spent by televangelists to try to get out the Christian message. Uh, but I'm not sure anybody has ever done a better job in the last, in my lifetime of getting out the Christian message than the Amish in, in uh, Southern Pennsylvania, who, whose behavior mystified the world uh, by their ability to absorb violence and respond with forgiveness. And in this way, making the gospel visible. And so the importance of there actually being a community of mutual service and love that lives and embodies the teaching of Jesus, I realized this, that, that this was a unique window into Jesus. If you want to go back, you could say it like this. The evangelical Jesus saves by dying uh, on the cross for our sins. The Pentecostal Jesus adds to that by sending the Holy Spirit. And the Catholic Jesus saves by rising from the dead. And the Eastern Orthodox Jesus saves by incarnation, by entering our world by assuming our world by bringing God into our world and in some way then bringing our world into the life of God in an almost cosmic way and then the liberal Protestant Jesus saves by teaching the, giving us the wisdom that we really need but in a way for Anabaptists and all of the Anabaptist scholars here I'm sure you could say there's a lot more to it than this but I think you'd agree Jesus saves by calling together 12 disciples and forming them in a community. And the community of disciples continues and extends through history. It's a remarkable vision of Jesus. The last Jesus I felt I got to know uh, was another Jesus I'd been prejudiced against. And this is the Jesus of liberation theology. Uh, this Jesus, I'd been told, th this movement in theology, I'd been told, was dangerous because they had mixed Christian faith with Marxist economics and sociology. And I'd been told that they were violent and they believed in uh, uh, using guns to kill people. Now, never did I catch the irony 
that I was hearing this from Christians who had mixed their faith with capitalism and who also were very happy to kill people in the name of their religion uh, as long as it was for the sake of Christianity and capitalism. I never caught that irony uh, for a long time. Uh, and I hesitate to say it because it bothers people when I say it. But, but then I realized that this was a caricature of a few extremists in liberation theology, but that the bulk of liberation theology was very, very different. I, I realized that Dr. King here in the United States represented uh, liberation theology. I realized that Desmond Tutu in uh, South Africa represented liberation theology. Uh, and then I began spending more time in Latin America and started to learn about some of the great Latin American theologians of liberation. And then I realized that many of the greatest European theologians of the late 20th century were people who had learned from the liberation theologians from the global south. And I realized that what, what one of the incredible insights that they had is that when we read the Bible, the perspective that we have colors the way we read the Bible. So if rich people read the Bible, they see it one way. But if poor people read the Bible, they see it another way. I'll give you an example of this. When uh, uh, at the church, uh, Cedar Ridge, where I, I was pastor for 24 years, on September, uh, uh, the week of September 11, 2001, we were in the middle of a Bible study on Sunday nights. We were doing a, the best Bible study I've ever been part of. I highly recommend this. We got a group of people together, anywhere from 25 to 50 people on a Sunday night. And we decided most of the people in my church had never read the Old Testament. Uh, and in fact, most of the people in my church had never read the Bible before coming. So we were trying to expose people to the Bible. So we said we're going to take Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I love doing this to the uh, translator. But anyway, uh, uh, doing the, the first five books of the Bible. And what we did is we said each night we'll get together and we'll read three to five chapters out loud in unison. So we'd all sit there with our Bibles and we'd read out loud in unison. Uh, and there's something about reading it out loud and in unison that slows you down and makes you, in a certain sense, hear it with your ears and, not, and feel it in your body and not just see it with your eyes. So we worked through Genesis, Exodus. We were in Exodus when September, uh, the, the Sunday after September 11th, so whatever it was, 17th or 15th or whatever, that Sunday night. And that Sunday night, we happened to be reading the story of the plagues against Egypt. And I don't know if any of you can anticipate what happened that night. That night, Everyone in the room identified with the Egyptians. And it looked like God and Moses were Al-Qaeda. Do you, do you see that? The powerful was having disruptive and even violent things happen to them on behalf of the oppressed people so that they could be liberated. And I, I was just amazed that night and we had an environment where people could be very honest. And people were just mad at God and mad at Moses. And they were comparing Moses to Osama bin Laden and all kinds of things. But that, what that night did to all of us is it helped us realize I had always read the Bible identifying with the Jews. 
But then I realized that I had a bias to read the Bible that night identifying with the Egyptians. And the liberation theologians tell us, no, the right way to read the Bible is to realize that the Jewish people were a small, oppressed people living under the domination of empire. And God didn't work with the imperial powers to help them maintain social order and domination. God worked with the oppressed people to help them gain liberation. And of course, this is what inspired Dr. King. It's what inspired Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu and uh, uh, Oscar Romero and so many others in Latin America. That God saves in this vision by siding with the poor and the oppressed. And in a certain sense, Jesus saves by being the presence of God among the poor and the oppressed. Well, you put all those together and you've got a real rich combination of visions of Jesus. Maybe you could just uh, kind of review these mentally with me. We'll start in the upper left. Jesus saves by accepting our punishment so we, have, we don't have to keep punishing ourselves. And brothers and sisters, that's good news for all of us because all of us sin and we're all very susceptible to, self, to either self-hatred for our sin or else hypocrisy because we won't acknowledge our sin or sometimes hatred of other people because when we feel guilty about our sin, we want a scapegoat to blame and say he's even worse than I am. But in the cross of Jesus, from the evangelical perspective, God is accepting all of our sin into God's own self so that we never need to, be, to punish ourselves or see punishment as a factor in our relationship with God anymore. Powerful, liberating message. And the Pentecostals understand that one of the purposes of sending Jesus, in fact, Jesus said, it's better for me to go away so you'll receive the Holy Spirit that one of the purposes in sending Jesus was to open the way for the sending of the Holy Spirit to be active in the world. And that God's Spirit isn't just an idea, but God's Spirit is a reality that we can enter into and can enter into us. And that Christ truly is victor. He, by defeating death, Jesus has changed the equation of human existence forever. And is present to us today through the sacraments and through the people of God. And from the Eastern Orthodox perspective, simply by entering human, uh, the human experience, by entering matter and energy and time, the great hero is among us and we can have hope. And the, the, the medicine has come into the body of humanity and it, that medicine will never be defeated. And Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is lodged into the human race. And like seeds being sown, it's spreading and it's having an effect and it's transforming the world. And not only is it a disembodied teaching, but as the Anabaptists know, it's a teaching that's lived out in specific communities that actually practice the way of Jesus. And their presence in the world works like yeast in dough and is bringing transformation. And that that transformation has a special bias and concern for the oppressed and the forgotten and the marginalized and the least of these. Well, I 
as I have looked at these different images of Jesus, I've realized that they all address legitimate problems, guilt and sin, sickness and powerlessness, fear of death and the devil, isolation and alienation, ignorance and injustice, violence and division, oppression by the powers. And I've realized that in a certain sense, each of these uh, movements within Christianity has tried to solve problems that were created by its historical predecessors. In the early church, uh, there was a terrible problem of schism and heresy. The Eastern Orthodox solved that by saying, we will have continuity from the, for the first few centuries. And, and that was a very legitimate way to try to solve the problem of schism. What the earliest leaders of the church said, we will always respect. Now, maybe you never thought of this before, but the Catholic Church realized, yeah, but we have a problem. The world keeps changing, so we need some way to keep updating issues where the earliest church leaders maybe were incomplete or couldn't deal with uh, un unforeseen realities. So they created a centralized authority to maintain continuity, but also allow some degree of innovation. But um, that created a certain kind of hierarchicalism that Protestants tried to resolve. Uh, with Martin Luther and John Calvin and the emphasis on God's grace. But there was an awful lot of violence in the world, and a lot of times it was Protestants and Catholics killing each other. And thank God for the Anabaptist heritage that responded to those, that religious violence by saying, we will be a community that lives and practices the teaching of Jesus. Uh, someone just gave me a bumper sticker. I haven't put it on my car yet, but it says, who would Jesus bomb? And that's a real Anabaptist bumper sticker, I think. Um, then the liberal Protestants realized that among Christians, as especially with the advances in science, there was a lot of anti-intellectualism. And they were said, let's take the teaching of Jesus seriously and let's use our intellect to its full ability. And, uh, but meanwhile, Pentecostals and the Wesleyan tradition had realized that many Christians were just Christians in name. Or maybe they had an intellectual commitment to the faith, but they didn't feel it. And so they wanted to make sure that faith was not only understood, but was also felt. But even with all of these movements, the 20th century, uh, the, the 19th and 20th century were the era, eras of colonialism. And so liberation the theology arose to say, no, Jesus cares about the poor, and Jesus cares about the oppressed. And for us to be faithful to Jesus means that we see the presence of Christ in the poor and the oppressed, and we see their suffering as the ongoing crucifixion of Jesus, and we see their liberation as the ongoing resurrection of Jesus. And I began to feel that there was a good reason for me to love Jesus in all of these ways. And instead of to choose one window, as it were, and get rid of all the others, just as in this room we have windows all around, and they each bring light at a different time of day, and, a different, and they, they make this room a brighter place. For us to be surrounded by these different images of Jesus can help us to appreciate Jesus in deeper and richer ways. And that's what I hope these few moments maybe have helped you do. Let's pray together. And some of us maybe have never really understood Jesus. And maybe some of these little windows today help you get a vision into why Jesus is important, why many of us identify ourselves
the deepest part of our identity is, is related now to being followers of Jesus. And maybe some of us have been hurt or maybe felt a little cramped by being in a context where only one vision of Jesus was celebrated and all the others were rejected. And maybe this morning gives you a little more room. But there's one word that all these different traditions in the Christian faith use, and it's a, it, beautifully, it's a word that's not even English. It's the word hallelujah from Hebrew. And I wonder if our closing prayer, we could just sing that word hallelujah. And that will be our way of saying, Jesus, you're bigger than any of our visions. And we acknowledge you in some way beyond words. And I'll just, what we'll do is we'll sing this as a scale. Uh, we'll just go up five notes and down. And you're wonderful singers, and you can throw in some harmonies. But you'll catch on very quickly. So we're going to sing hallelujah on one note, up a scale and down as our closing prayer. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Brian. Again, welcome all who are here tomorrow night at 7.30. Brian will be giving a public lecture entitled Spiritual Formation in the Emerging Culture. Uh, my name is Bob Yoder. I'm the campus pastor here. Brian will be up front here for a few minutes uh, following our dismissal here. So you're welcome to come up and talk with him. Go in peace.